Let's now turn for our scripture reading and our text to uh, the book of Zechariah, the 14th chapter. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. Both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Giba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. 
Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone whose sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to this last chapter of the book of Zechariah, the last sermon on this book. And uh, this chapter continues with the theme that we began to consider last time concerning the day of the Lord. That language is again repeated uh, frequently in this passage before us. And uh, that theme is continued in such a way that brings Zechariah's message of hope. Remember that we considered uh, the theme of this book to be a message of hope. And in this passage before us, that message of hope uh, comes to a climax. Certainly that hope that sustained and does sustain uh, Israel and the church down through the centuries is ultimately that blessed hope, that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great God and Savior, who will judge the world in righteousness, who will rescue his people from every enemy and who will bring them to everlasting peace and righteousness. And again, there are themes throughout this passage that comforted the church and and were fulfilled after a manner, even through the subsequent history of Israel and through the history of the church down through the centuries. But they yet prefigure the climax that is yet to come at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter has many themes that show the advance of God's kingdom in history, particularly as that pertains to the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what that means. And there are sections in this passage that must be understood in that light. But again, ultimately, these themes culminate. They come to a head in that final crisis of opposition uh, to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and in that final uh, deliverance and salvation of the church and the final revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in glory. The great day of the Lord is coming. That's our theme from this passage. We're going to uh, consider what that means from, from various perspectives that are that are given to us in this passage. And we want, we want to begin with the fact that this day will involve uh, apparent defeat turned to victory. Jerusalem suffers the devastation of war. It's described there in, in uh, verse 1 and 2. Uh, the spoil, the plunder of Jerusalem would be divided by the nations. The nations will be gathered to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. That's basically a description of the characteristic horrors of war marked by pillage and rape and plunder. And Jerusalem would suffer such things. In fact, if you know the history of Israel, prior to this prophecy, yet subsequent to this prophecy, how often the children of Israel faced hostility and and attack by surrounding nations within the next 50 years when Nehemiah comes 
to seek to fortify the city and rebuild its walls, they would repeatedly face the opposition and enmity of surrounding nations. And it's only God's protecting care that would, that would deliver them and protect them from such hostility. And this has been the plight of God's people. This has been the story of the history of the church down through the centuries. Jesus told his disciples, you will be hated of all men for my sake. And again, we're taught in scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation, that this will, this will come to a, a climax described in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 20 after that little season uh, or after that uh, that millennium in which Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the, the nation, so that the gospel can go forth into all the world, Satan will have his little season. He will be loosed for a time. And he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose numbers as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's a description, again, in figurative languages, language that connects with the historical situation, but it's language that describes a final assault of this world against the church of Jesus Christ. We also know that the world's assault on the church, as it has been throughout the centuries, and it also will be in that final assault, will be a time of testing. It will be a time of sifting. It will be a time of separation. Separation from the wheat and the chaff. A distinction between those who truly are members of this heavenly Jerusalem by faith and those who may be nominal in their association with the church and kingdom of God. And that's also indicated in this passage. At the end of verse 2 we read, Half of the city shall go into captivity but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. You remember last time we looked at this concept that again, very prominent in Scripture, the idea of a remnant. In chapter 13, that remnant is described as a third. It shall come to pass, again, with respect to the day of the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and Test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer. These are the true people of God, described as a third, described as a remnant. Now a similar idea is described in terms of half. And we ought not to get hung up on the percentages. We come to the New Testament, we find instances where the suggestion of a half is, is made prominent in the, the prophecies of our Lord Jesus Christ and His teachings Concerning his return, two shall be grinding at the mill, one shall be taken, taken in judgment, another shall be left, spared. Two shall be in a bed, one shall be taken, another shall be left. Or consider Jesus' description of his return with that parable of the, of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. Five of them were wise. Five of them were ready for His coming. Five of them had oil in their lamps. Five of them did not. Half of them did not. It's biblical imagery that describes a kind of separation and sifting and distinction 
that takes place among the professed people of God under testing. And here with respect to the final tribulation and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now imagine someone with infallible prophetic authority saying, half of you here this morning will fall away. Half of you, when you face testing and hardship for the sake of professing to be a Christian, you will not stand. You will not be willing and able to suffer the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ under pressure. What if I said half of you young people are going to succumb to the philosophies of this world? You're going to become ensnared with false teachings and you're going to deny the faith that you once professed. I have no basis upon which to say such a thing and I'm certainly not saying it. But the teaching of our text here, in view of the fact that times of tribulation and testing involve a sifting and a separation, they should lead each one of us to call out to the Lord, saying, Lord, keep me. Lord, deliver me from that strong delusion that you will send to those who do not receive the truth and the love of it, but who succumb to the lie. It will be a time of testing. You will be hated of all men for my sake, Jesus said, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. God will appear. God will appear for his people. We sang Psalm 46, which speaks of that deliverance uh, just in the nick of time. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. And that passage in Revelation that describes the gatherings of the nations against the church of Jesus Christ, uh, there is one sentence that just kind of dispenses with the whole problem. They shall gather together against the, the beloved city and the saints. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. God intervenes. God manifests his presence and power when things appear to be desperate and hopeless. In the book of Judges, we have this account of, of the surrounding kings gathering together. Five kings and their power against Israel. And again, things looked desperate and hopeless. But actually, it was just God's opportunity of dispensing with them all at once. Those kings were destroyed by God's power. It's like a preview of what's described here in this passage. Note verse 2, it says, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That's God's work. That's God's sovereign purpose being fulfilled. And th when things look desperate and hopeless, God is going to stand up and intervene. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. On that mount, just outside uh, the city of Jerusalem. Actually, it's the mount in which our Lord Jesus Christ ascended, you recall. Is there a suggestion of his return in this language? Certainly, the language is highly figurative, but it speaks of God intervening and moving mountains for the sake of the deliverance of his people. 
That mountain's going to be split in two and God's going to create a valley of escape. Again, it's one of those passages where we ought not to get hung up on the details, but understand the message here. Yes, God is able easily to move mountains and create a pathway to rescue His people, to provide a way of escape. And He most certainly will. He will turn apparent defeat into the ultimate smashing victory with all opposition destroyed. That's described here in this passage. And and, uh, you, you notice that it's... It's rather frightening imagery that's used. The day of the Lord is described as a day of darkness, a day of diminished light. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will be diminished. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Remember, the Lord only knows the day and the hour of His return. Day, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. The darkness will be dispelled, light will appear. Now this is characteristic and actually common uh, language of God's coming in judgment. And again, in many instances, it, it seems to have a kind of figurative significance. Sometimes it appears literally, physically, when God comes as judge. And we remember that the cross of Calvary was shrouded in blackness. And the sun was hidden when the Son of God endured the judgment of God against His Son for our sins. But the coming day of the Lord is is often described in terms of changes in the heavens, changes in the sun. Jesus said in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are things that attended judgment. These are things that are used figuratively to describe judgment, but ultimately they also come to a climax before the Lord Jesus comes again. And His coming will also mean a sudden, and here it seems to be very personal, a a personal kind of decomposition that uh, verse 12 describes. It says, this will be the plague which with the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their, their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. And again, it's futile, it's pointless to speculate what kind of disease, what kind of disaster could cause this kind of thing. It is graphic, it's frightening language, and brothers and sisters, it is intended to be. There ought to be no doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes uses language that is intended to be rather frightening when he describes eternal punishment in a place of outer darkness where there'll be weeping and grinding of teeth, where the fire isn't quenched, where the worm does not die. Yes, He uses such language so that sinners might be alarmed and be anxious to escape the wrath to come and see the absolute necessity of taking refuge in the only place of safety, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible uses such language 
to describe God's judgment. We have it so often in the book of, in the book of Revelation. We hear it in Revelation chapter 16. As a result of the fourth angel pouring out his bowl on the sun and power was given him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. This is the language of God's judgment of the wicked. And yes, it is intended to frighten them at the thought of facing the consequences of their sins. Fear and confusion, another characteristic of that final day. It's described in verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there are numerous instances in which the situation appeared to be utterly desperate and hopeless for God's people. Why? Because they were surrounded by armies that so vastly outnumbered them that the the thought of defending themselves or overcoming them seemed to be an utter impossibility. And there are many instances in which God intervenes. He intervenes by storm. He intervenes by hurling hailstones of such size as to obliterate armies. Or he intervenes by inflicting these armies with a kind of madness. So they start killing each other. It's happened again and again. That's a description of this final judgment. It's like a a, a common feature of God's method of defeating enemies who vastly outnumber his people. He gives them over to self-destruction. And there's something profound for us to to see in that. The fact is that opposing God is always suicidal, ultimately. Every coalition against the church so often ends up in people devouring themselves. Don't we live in a world in which people in their sin and their madness and their hopelessness as they wage war against God, are devouring and destroying themselves. Young people who are neutering themselves with surgery or drugs so that they cannot reproduce. Children destroying their offspring in the womb. People assisting the weak to do away with themselves. Brothers and sisters, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there go I. Apart from God, there is but self-destruction. God judges sin with madness. God gives people over to a reprobate mind sometimes with awful consequences. God turns the tables on the plunderers. We read in verse 1, Your spoil will be divided in their midst. 
And then in verse 14, Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Actually, the prophecy of Ezekiel speaks of this final battle of Gog and Magog that Revelation speaks of. And uh, it says they will uh, plunder, that is, God's people will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. Again, the point being a kind of poetic justice in which God turns the tables. He does that. He does that in various ways. How often do we sing in the Psalms of the consequences of those who in their enmity and hostility dig pits? You dig pits for others in hatred and a desire for revenge? You're going to fall into it. You love cursing? Those who love cursing will be cursed. Those who shed blood, well, God gives them blood to drink. That's actually kind of a grotesque uh, description of uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 16, verse 6, with respect to this, this uh, figurative representative of the world, this, this harlot. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. God turns the tables on plunders, and ultimately all the resources of rebellion are cursed. That's what we read in verse, in verse 15. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps, so shall this plague be. They will be like those cities of Canaan that were devoted to destruction, right? You know the story of how God uh, required that those wicked cities whom God had forborne for centuries in his patience and long-suffering. But when their iniquity came to the full, God used his people in that instance to execute judgment on them. They were totally devoted to the ban. They were utterly obliterated. Everything that belonged to them. Brothers and sisters, yes, that's a disturbing story, and it must be viewed in terms of a sound theology of a God who is sovereign and who is a righteous judge. Or we're going to fall into uh, conceptions of, of genocide and such that have no place when we think about that. But we are to think of a preview of the final judgment to come in which all opposition will be destroyed. And verse 11 says the people who dwell in it, that is in this Jerusalem described here, and no longer shall there be utter destruction. Death itself will be destroyed. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. The day of the Lord is a day in which God will turn apparent defeat into victory. A day in which God will completely destroy all opposition to Christ, His kingdom, His church. And that means that it is a day of universal worship of the king. All nations shall worship the king in that day, we're told 
in verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Now it says he will be king. The Lord is already king over all the earth. But the point is that he will be acknowledged as king over all the earth. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. He will be so acknowledged and worshipped as described again in the book of Revelation in, in chapter 11 where we read of uh, the seventh angel sounding and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. The 24 elders, the representatives of the entire church. Twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles combined, representing the redeemed. They fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You see the context. It's the acknowledged exaltation and rule of the king. Verse 9b says, In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. Echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you're to worship this one God. And in that day, this one God will be known and worshipped by all forever. The holy city will be exalted. Again, that's described in highly figurative language here. In uh, in verse 10, we say, All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. Again, the significance of those specific references and, and details are are not so easy, but we don't want to miss the main point. And that describes a kind of leveling of the valleys and mountains surrounding Jerusalem and the elevation of Jerusalem above all. And again, this isn't the only time we find such language. We hear it in Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 2 in its description of uh, that day. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It will tower over Mount Everest and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Yes, that's imagery. But it, but it proclaims the profound and glorious truth of the exaltation of God in his church. Today, church steeples are obscured by skyscrapers. That wasn't, that wasn't always the case. Typically, the, the most prominent visible thing in a village or a town was the steeple of the church. But today, 
Even those churches with high steeples that remain in our big cities are in the shadow of tall skyscrapers. And we might even kind of see that as a, a symbol of the pride and power of man towering over the church. No, I'm not against skyscrapers next to churches. That's not the point. But the time is coming when no more. There will be no pride and power of man. In Revelation chapter 21, we have this description of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. And it's interesting in its dimensions. For one thing, it's a cube. And for another thing, it's 12,000 furlongs high and wide. You know, you don't have any idea how, how high that is? That's like outer space. That's 1,380 miles. Yes. A figurative way of proclaiming the prominence of God's kingdom and the worship of God. The earthly place of worship changed in Christ, right? See, that's why we don't get hung up about, you know, the idea of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus made clear, like even during his earthly ministry and his conversation with the woman at Samaria, where he says, the hour is coming, we're not in this mountain of Samaria, nor in Jerusalem shall they worship. The hour is coming, now is, when God uh, seeks those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The location is no longer going to be an issue whatsoever. Jerusalem will no longer be the center of worship, period. Not for a little while, and we're going to go back to the old covenant way. No, no, no. We're not talking about a literal building in Palestine. We're talking about the figurative language of the worship of God's people, Jew and Gentile, forever in his presence. We also know that the ancient feasts were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, like the Passover feast, the Feast of of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles. So this passage is not a prophecy concerning the reinstatement of the Feast of Tabernacles while somehow the other ones are left out of sight. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was that great feast whereby Israel celebrated their deliverance from bondage to slavery in Egypt. And so we have figurative language of the universal church worshiping God, celebrating their everlasting deliverance from sin and Satan. Everyone from everywhere will give perpetual homage to the Lord of hosts. I don't know about you, but driving to church this morning, again, uh, through my neighborhood, it's like I'm the only one that seems to be out and about, unless some people's starting to mow their lawn or something. But I don't know. You know, there are very few people in my neighborhood that go to church. And when the second service comes along, uh, Diane and I will be getting in the car and we'll be looking around. There'll be more activity, but it's mostly more like mowing, mowing lawns or riding bikes or people getting ready to go to the, the lake or the park. Not in that day to come. Everyone will be worshiping the king. There, was, there will be no one else. No one else around. They will have suffered those plagues, those dreadful plagues that are described in this passage. And that also then will mean perfect consecration. Now again, the kingdom of God has appeared already in Christ. In Christ, 
uh, living waters have already flowed from Jerusalem. So it's described in verse 8, indeed has historical fulfillment that will come to a climax. But verse 8 describes living waters that flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In other words, it's going to inundate the land in every direction. And there was a fountain opened outside the gates of Jerusalem when the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood and God's provision for all uncleanness. God's way of imparting spiritual life and renewal and refreshment has ever since then flowed, flowed. And wherever Christ is known, there is a washing away of sins. There is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There is the refreshing, reviving grace of God operative in His church. But this too shall come to a climax. In Christ, also old covenant distinctions between clean and unclean have already been removed. Right? Jews and Gentiles, they both have access to the worship of God on the same terms by faith in Jesus Christ. And the worship of God is not regulated by, by rules concerning clean and unclean food or clean and unclean instruments or vessels or sacrifices of worship or clothing or any such thing. All such uh, ceremonial distinctions have been forever removed. And in Christ already, holiness is to characterize all our activities. Whether we eat or drink, we're to do all to the glory of God. But such consecration will be perfected in that day to come. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Bells. You know, this is one of those points where if you really insist on a literal interpretation, you're going to run into trouble because that word bells, you look at commentary. Some say it has to do with the trappings of the horses, the reins of the horses. It, it, it has some reference to uh, the accoutrements of a, of a horse. The point being that something so insignificant as the harness of a horse is going to be devoted to the Lord. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrificed shall come and take them and cook in them. Again, we're not looking for the reinstatement of sacrifices. What we have here, brothers and sisters, is a description of a situation in which holiness permeates all of life. There's no sin. There's no uncleanness. There's nothing that separates us from God and from one another in a fellowship of love. That will be removed. Our prayers. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated to Thee. Take my moments and my days, my silver and my gold. That prayer is actually going to be answered and realized to perfection in that day to come. It will be forever accomplished. And nothing unclean is going to enter this Jerusalem, this holy city, this new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, remember how the book of Revelation uh, describes that in 
in chapter 20, after describing this city, it says, And there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. In other words, there will be no Canaanite in the house of God. Right? That's the language of this prophecy. The Canaanites were the condemned wicked. And they will not be present. Nothing unclean. No one unclean. Everything will be holiness to the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. It's the culmination of our hope. It's our comfort in the face of trials and sins and troubles. Let that day loom large before your eyes. Think about it. Remember it. Let that be a, a comfort and a, a strength and a motivation. All right, now more and more practice this consecration of your life to God. And with all your imperfection, you look forward to that great salvation that will be revealed in its fullness when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in glory. If this study of this rather challenging book has helped in a small way to increase that perspective of hope, that expectation of complete deliverance, well, then God has blessed this book to our salvation, and we give glory and thanks to him. Amen.